Welcome to Leading on Purpose with Nicole Bendeley. What does it take to lead yourself and your teams to high performance with ease? Today, you'll discover simple practices that separate exceptional leaders from the rest. Now, here is your host, Nicole Bendeley. Hi there. Welcome to this episode of Leading on Purpose. I'm really excited for today's episode. A good friend of mine, Frank Zakari, is joining me, and I'm going to introduce him in a minute. I can't wait to jump into this conversation with Frank because I was, you know, as I was reflecting on today's episode, you know, what came to mind for me is that one of the most common barriers to a team and organization's performance is really the inability for people within organizations to connect powerfully with one another. You know, for example, I'm going to share an example that I share in my book, Winner Instinct. Imagine a computer or even your phone loaded with the most powerful, most advanced software possible. Just sitting on a desk, but not attached to any sort of power source. It is full of potential that will never be realized unless someone connects it to an energy source. Many people and teams are the same, possessing capability replete with potential, but not effectively connected to the people around them. And too often when people do connect, the energy exchange is one that depletes rather than energizes, leaving people feeling frustrated, stressed, distrustful, and disengaged. In fact, this concept of connecting powerfully with each other, with others, being interconnected is so essential in no matter what organization or industry you work in that we included it as one of the six laws of success that's outlined in my book that I wrote with my mother, actually, um, Winner Instinct. And, and this energy exchange that I, that I talked about, the ability to connect powerfully with others is all based on building dialogue and achieving common ground. And my guest today, Frank, Frank Zakari, is here to shed light on how leaders can effectively achieve common ground so that they can perform at their very, very best. So let me tell you a little bit about Frank. Frank is a native of Western New York. And Frank, every time I read this about you, I'm always just amazed um, and grateful. You served as a military medic in the U.S. Air Force and before spending 20 years in the high-tech industry. Frank's experience has included senior positions with Fortune 50 organizations to turning around small and mid-sized companies. His path has helped him learn a great deal about business, finance, organizational development, people, and success. Frank's goal is to help others on their journey by sharing the knowledge he's gained throughout the years. Frank has created and managed, um, actually, sorry, Frank created, managed, and sold one of the most profitable insurance agencies in Northern California. He's a best-selling author, has written and published five books, and is completing number six based on life-altering events, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He teaches a program for aspiring entrepreneurs at Arizona State University. He is a mentor with the Veterans Treatment Court, a mentor and judge with the University of California Entrepreneurship Academy, and is an accomplished speaker. 
Frank is also the host of an internet radio show, Life Altering Events, on this network, the Voice America Network on the Empowerment Channel, which has, and his show has over 200,000 listeners in 38 countries. After 30 years as a successful executive, author, and entrepreneur, Frank has joined forces with Jay Abraham and Gabby Ori to form the tag team to leverage the knowledge and experience he gained to help aspiring entrepreneurs and other leaders uncover hidden opportunities, find solutions to pressing personal and professional challenges, and build high-performing teams. So, Frank, this is a pleasure for me to have you because I have to tell you all, Frank is the reason why I started my own podcast. Frank had me as a guest twice, I think. Twice. Frank, twice. twice on his show, Life Altering Events. And if you haven't listened to that, um, I really encourage you all to listen to it. And I enjoyed being a guest so much and saw how, what an incredible host and how well he's done with his podcast that he inspired me to take a risk and do this myself. So Frank, thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure, Nicole. I always enjoy talking to you. So Frank, let's start. Let's start. Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you go from being a medic in the U.S. Air Force to where you are now supporting entrepreneurs and growing businesses and building high-performance teams? How did you get from A to B? Well, E to B was interesting because I didn't intend to become a military medic. In fact, I didn't intend to be in the military at all. We, uh, back in the United States, back then in the Vietnam War, they had something called a lottery. And the way you got drafted into the military was like bingo balls. And so a ball would pop up and have your birth date. So my birth date's June mm-hmm. 1st. And then another area, another ball would pop up and that would be your draft number. So June 1st pops up and number 10 pops up. So they drafted that year from number one to number 126. Wow. So I was number 10. So that was pretty much over. You're going to go into the service. Wow. So it was either uh, be drafted into the Army and spend two years or enlist in the Air Force. And you have to spend four years if you enlisted back then. So I looked at the, at the situation. The war was winding down in Vietnam at that time. But I didn't want to be shot at. And... Uh, I figured, who's the last person other than a general to get shot at? And I figured it was an Air Force medic, because if you do go to the war zone, you stay where the airplanes are. And the airplanes are usually 100 mm. miles from the front, and that's where the hospitals are. Okay, so it was a, it was a strategic decision. Right, you were even spend, using your strategic mind back then, right. <laughs> spend two extra years. So it was, it was a great experience. The military was a great experience. I learned a great deal about people, about strategies, about working within a system that puts a lot of barriers in front of you, just like you've done with with your business. In the military, there's a barrier for everything, and you just find a way around it or you find a way to work within the system. So when I was going to get discharged, uh, I wasn't a doctor, and the only jobs for military medics, even though I was an EMT, was uh, you could be an orderly in a hospital, and I wasn't too crazy about changing bedpans for the rest of my life. So I finished school. And I went into business administration, into finance. And the idea was, in my mind, I'm going to trade money. I wanted to be a money trader. So I take, take the, uh, go to school for finance. I took a course in lobbying and pressure group. It, well, because I was in Sacramento, California, which is the state capital in California. And I met a lobbyist and he had to do a paper on this lobbyist. So I picked the lobbyist from the Bank of America. Once again, mm-hmm. through, I want to be in finance. 
And I told him, I have, I have a dual purpose here. I, I want to do this paper on you and I want to understand what you do, but I want you to give me an interview with the Bank of America trading room. Okay, so I did the paper. He got me the interview. Yay. So I go to San Francisco, interview at the Bank of America in their trading room, get offered the job, which was exciting. And this was a long time ago. And they said, well, Frank, this is how it works. We pay $10,000 a year. So this was a really long time ago. Right. And you have to move to San Francisco. Now, I was living in Sacramento at the time. And nobody can afford to live in San Francisco then. And even now, you still can't Mm -hmm. afford it. And NCR came to uh, the campus. And I thought, well, I'll go talk to NCR. I had no idea who NCR was. I thought it was National Semiconductor. Right? There was no Google back then. Right. What do you do? So I go in and talk to NCR and they were head of computer division. So they said, Frank, we love what you're doing. You're a veteran. You're a little bit older. We're going to start you off at $14,000 a year and you don't have to move. So being a fan. That sounds like a good deal. I said, okay, I get $10,000 and move to Sanford. So I said, okay, I'll go into high tech. So I did that. And my mind was, all right, I'll do this for two, three years and then I'll go back into finance. I need to learn about technology anyway. So 27 years later, I was still in high tech and I had moved very quickly. A lot of it was right place, right time. And it always seemed that wherever I was moved into, it was, it was something new. We're coming out with a new product release or we're coming out with a new, going into a new market sector. And for whatever reason, I was always the one that was selected to do that. So it was always... Okay, now how do we put this together? How do you put the how do you put an organization together? What do I need? What kind of people? What kind of skills? What kind of talent, etc.? And so that was a lot of fun. And so it was like something new every day going to work. NCR was then bought by AT&T. Um, so I became this is a funny story. At NCR, I was the last position I had was director of government. So I had I had the like 11 or 12 states in the western United States. And I was responsible for state government, state government. And so AT&T buys NCR, AT&T people come in and they said, okay, Frank, you're going to become government operation director for 25 states, half the the nation. And I said, okay, fine, cool. Maybe you want to rethink the name. And then he looks at me and he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, everything's an acronym. So I'm director of government, DOG. And now you want me to be government operation director, G-O-D. So now I would be... (laughs) God, <laughs> he burst out laughing and he said, I don't care. Call yourself whatever. So on my door, Nicole, it had Frank Sakari, God. <laughs> and my staff, they had, you know, 25 states. And whenever some, some big opportunity was coming up or they, they wanted a decision or they needed me, someone on the team would always say, I don't know. That's a big one. We better go ask God about this. <laughs> that's great. So and, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, and so from there, how did you, how did you get to here? So from there, it, uh, I left, I left AT&T and I started doing turnarounds of failing companies. Okay. Didn't realize the first one was failing because they lie to you and it's not publicly traded. And I did that for about 15 years. And that Nicole was, an experience. I, I absolutely loved it because you, everything you learned, everything I learned in the military and in school and everywhere else comes into play because you go into toxic situations, which you know mm-hmm. a great deal about. Okay, how do we fix this? How do I start relating to these people? How do we start figuring out 
what can possibly work? Can we possibly save this organization, number one? And then what steps are going to be needed to put something in place that is going to sustain whatever success comes into play? So there was an awful lot of, I hadn't read your book at that point in time, but we're doing an awful lot of what you wrote in your book about the team building and getting to an individual level and the relationship becoming the factor, the critical thing uh, across the board. Now, all the companies that I did for 15 plus years, none of them failed, thank God, mm -hmm. and they all were better when I left. Um, I then, uh, my then wife left the family and uh, I had two young daughters and that was the end of high tech because I couldn't travel anymore. So we, uh, I, I took over an insurance agency, which for a type A personality like me, going from high tech, proactive to insurance, reactive, was like dying and going to hell. Right. It was, but it was a means to an end. I had two young daughters and I had to take care of them and I had to be a full-time father. So we took the insurance agency, um, made some major overhauls on organization-wise and how it was going to work. I did it for 13 years. It was a means to an end. I needed my youngest daughter to graduate and get a job. When that happened, I sold the agency and said, all right, now what am I going to be when I grow up? And we started going down a number of paths where you and I met in San Diego. Mm -hmm. We started on that path and then said, look, what I really want to do is I want to take all this knowledge. Let's take it and let's work with organizations who are in transition or organizations that are looking to go to another level. And that's what I started doing. And that's what I've been doing. And then other doors have opened up since then and the radio show and life's been good. It's been good. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I was thinking about your show, Life Altering Events, the other day as I sat and reflected on the impact of, of COVID. And this pandemic is really the first time the entire world is experiencing a life-altering event together. Yes. And that event is affecting all of us maybe in very different ways. Um, but we're all going through it together and each country, each business, each family is reacting differently, potentially, um, but nevertheless is having an impact. And so I'm curious, Frank, what are you noticing? What are the leadership and organizational trends that you're noticing given the state of the world today? We're seeing two. We're seeing the people who are just panicked and are paralyzed and don't know what to do. And they're just hoping we come out of this and that things will go back to normal. And when I talk to those people, I try to say it as nicely as I can, that's not going to happen. Normal is gone. It's over. And then we have the people and, and how we talk about it with the tag team, which we'll get into later is, um, Great achievements come from great adversity. Mm -hmm. And we have a whole lot of adversity right now. So let's step back and let's rethink what it is we want to do. What do we do? Why do we do it? More importantly, why do we do what we do? And then let's introspectively look at what's going on. Because in, in, in the pre-COVID world, no one had time. There was no time to sit down and say, well, what else could we do? What else could we do better? How could we be better at this? You just didn't have the time because you're so busy on a treadmill. So we tell them, let's, let's, let's hunker down. Let's talk to our staff. Let's get their input. They're closer to it than you are. What do they see? 
What do they think would make things better? Let's try to see if we can implement that and not only implement it, but let them implement it and empower them, which shocks a lot of people. You've, this is your world, Nicole. People are shocked in many organizations when they, when they come in and someone says, okay, what do you, what do you think? Right. And will you implement it? And they go, what? No one's ever asked me what I think and no one's ever asked me to implement. But they, the, the people, when you ask them that, they rise to the occasion because now they feel valued, which Absolutely. I read in your books all the time. But also what we looked at is what we see is what else could I do different? I'm giving a talk next week. And one of the examples we're giving is there's, there's an organization outside of Buffalo in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And they're a pizza place. And they had a couple of pizza stores, right? And they were doing very, very well. COVID hits, nobody's coming in to buy pizza anymore. They've got the hot the ovens with the fire, with the with the wood. Which, so it burns fast and the pizza's done like in two minutes or something. Well, we were meeting with them in a Zoom call like this. And we said, uh, what else could you use those ovens for? Not far away from you was a plastic manufacturer. Hmm. Maybe you could use your ovens to help mold plastic. So we connected with the plastic manufacturer and they, they were making the face masks, you know, like the, the PPE thing. Right. You see doctors. where Well, they were manufacturing those and you have to mold the plastic. So they send it over. To the, to the pizza place, they would put it in, they made a little adjustment, they would show them how to, how to mold it a little bit, not the whole thing, and then send it back to the manufacturer. So now they have two businesses. Wow. They have a pizza business and they have this other one. Okay, now we'll see how long this goes on. And uh, th- their idea was, well, this is just a stopgap measure to keep revenue coming in. They said, I, don't, I, don't, I think you've got a full-time business here because this COVID thing's not going to go away. And we're going to need these kinds of things to be prepared going forward because something else is going to come up. It's just a matter of what. We don't know when, but something else is going to come up. So the people who are innovative in their mind are the ones that we're attracted to and are looking at this and saying, you know, I know I've done this for 25 years, but, you know, maybe maybe it's time to pivot. Right. And 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 we're seeing that all over. So when we get back from break, we're going to explore a few things because at the heart of what you told me is yes, innovation and courage and vulnerability to try something new, but there needs to be that trust and dialogue to within the organization to be able to identify and even have the conversation to explore trying something new. So let's come back and jump into how do you get to a place of common ground through dialogue? So we'll be right back. Perfect. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Leading a team today can be hard, but it doesn't have to be a struggle. With Kenco's self-paced e-course, leading high-performance teams, you'll gain everything you need to build the cohesion, communication, and engagement needed for your team to thrive. Right now, save 30% off the e-course. Plus, Nicole, host of Leading on Purpose, is including two coaching sessions with her at no extra charge. Use promo code VA30 when you visit kand.co slash ecourse. That's promo code VA30. Would you like a complimentary strategy session with Leading on Purpose host Nicole Bendeley? 
Nicole and her team have been making it possible for leaders to achieve exceptional results with ease for over 40 years. Nicole will help you to discover what's getting in your team's way from even better results and will share with you the simple practices that will make a big difference to your performance and theirs. Visit kand.co slash strategy and book your session with Nicole today. That's kand.co slash strategy. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned into Leading on Purpose with Nicole Bendeley. Find out more about Nicole and her company, K&Co, and check out her suite of leadership tools and resources at kand.co. Now, back to Leading on Purpose. All right, welcome back. So we're going to jump into, so Frank, I'd really like to explore, you know, the need for greater dialogue within organizations. And as you said, you know, teams can either falter and organizations can falter in this um, new world of work, not just falter, but, you know, die basically, right? And completely fall apart um, or thrive. And in order to thrive, we need to find common ground. So talk to us about the common ground concept. I'd be happy to, Nicole. Uh, I met a gentleman named Dr. Mark Porter. He's a PhD, and one of his focuses is in organizational development. And we got to talking and uh, to put on some seminars for some different organizations. And what he says is that he feels there's areas in an organization common ground. He defines it as well, people are engaged, they feel safe, they trust each other, there's processes in place, and they're willing to collaborate. That's the common, that's the goal. Then there's the underground. The underground are people that are not engaged. They're probably pretty much dropping out and thinking, why bother? Nobody cares. And these are the ones who sit in the meetings and don't say anything and nod their head, but don't do anything. And then there's the battleground. The battleground are the people who have checked out. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm waiting for an opportunity to leave or I'm waiting for an opportunity to file a suit and or I will get involved in corporate sabotage, okay, if you're real nefarious, okay. So we put this together and put a whole presentation and training together. And we met with a couple of organizations, a division of a major university and, and a law enforcement organization. And we asked the executives, the seat, the C-level types to come in. And we, we gave them pieces of paper, little sticky things. And we said, where's your organization in those three areas? Write it down. All right. 60% said, or 60% said common ground. Where if 60% of our business is in the common ground, we're doing OB, you're never going to get 100%. Okay, 30% in the underground, 10% in the battleground. And I thought that was pretty good. Okay, 60% is not bad. So they engage us. We go meet with the organization. You probably know the answer to this already. We meet with them and we come back and we say, well, this is what your people said 19% are in the common ground, 65% have checked out, and 15% are ready to go to battle. Mm. And they were, they're shocked. They're, what, what do you mean? And I said, it, it holds up with every 
the Gallup study, the Eastern yeah. uh, Kentucky study, 81 to 84% of the people are not engaged. Okay. So if you want to get engaged, you need to, you need to take some steps pretty quickly here. And so they'd asked us, well, well how do you do that? What, what do you suggest? And I said, uh, I said, well, I gave an example. I was a corporate executive CEO and, and I had, had these meetings and I never heard anybody saying that they were upset or in the battleground or, or they did because they don't talk about it. Right. So I said, I don't hear negative things. Or, and, and they said, think, step back. Let's talk about it. you're having conversations and you're having discussions. I read your book and in their discussions and conversations are usually debates and one side's trying mm-hmm. to, to get their will upon the other. And they said, what you need is dialogue. Dialogue is to understand, not to win the battle, not to be in head of it. And so they said to me, all right, Frank, let's solicit your organization. How often do you hear these terms, these things being said in your organization? Why is this project so far behind? Why hasn't this program started yet? Why didn't we see this coming? Mm-hmm. Why is turnover so high? Why is it taking so long to fill these positions? And then the one who said was, they said, what? <laughs> okay. If you have those kind of conversations, those kinds of words are being said in your organization, you're not having dialogue. Right. You're going to fail. Your people are taking sides and moving away, and you're not going to reach any of this collaboration and innovation, and there's no trust there. And in many cases, you have a toxic environment, and you don't even see it. So it's interesting because, so what are the signs then? If, if leaders aren't having dialogue that's required to understand, are we in the battleground or are we in the underground or the common ground? What are the signs to indicate, oh, I'd better pay attention here. I'd better figure out (laughs) where my teams lie. So what are the signs leaders can look for to tell them if if the majority of their people are in the underground in the battleground? What are the signs to look for? One of the things that we look at when we walk in is we'll sit in and watch a meeting. Okay. And if one person is doing all the talking, you've got a serious problem. Right. Okay. If the majority of the people are not engaged, if people are looking at their phone, if people are doodling, they're not listening. Mm-hmm. They're just saying, all right, I'm not going to bring anything up because why bother? No one's listening anyway. Okay. So that's the first sign that we do when we walk in is if, if we see that, we, we start making notes. We've got, we got a major problem here. Now, how big the problem is we did, but you got an issue here. When people stop talking, I remember being in the military, I had this master sergeant, he said to me one time, he says, as long as the troops are bitching, I know they care. Hmm. Okay, when they stop complaining and stop talking, then we problem. Okay, so we look for silence. Is there Mm -hmm. silence there? And when you walk in, and, and it's, it's toxic. It's like everyone's walking eggshells and you, you don't see a lot of eye contact, see people wanting to engage. Um, they're going their separate ways. There's, they're, not, they're not congregating in the break room. They're not having conversation. There's just not a good sense there. And you can just feel the tension. We look at 
they always will say, well, what do I do? How do I fix this? You know, I, I, I don't want to do all this touchy-feely stuff. How do, right. I, how do I handle it? Well, okay. I don't want to do a trust fall. I don't want to do a trust fall. I'm not going out in the woods for a week, (laughs) that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so what what I tell them is you need someone like Nicole Bendeley to come in and to sit down with your team and to let's lay out what's going on here and let people feel safe. It's like going to a counselor, Mm -hmm. right? You're not crazy because you're going to see a counselor or a psychiatrist. It's just a safe place for you to vet what it is you need to vet, get it out there in the open. And organizations who are in crisis, don't, people won't do that because they feel that there's a hidden agenda. Mm-hmm. And then when I took over failing companies, one of the things I would do is walk in, I would, I would, I would meet with everybody, everybody in the organization, one-on-one. And I tell them, I want to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Speak freely. All right? Then once you get t- done telling me the good, the bad, and the ugly, then tell me what you would do. What do you think would make this better? Okay. And like I said before, it, it has shocked a lot of people. They had no answer, no comeback for it because they weren't the ones ever asking. Right. What I think. And until you get to that point, you're going you're gonna to flounder. Because we told so many executives, look, if people don't really care what you know until they know that you care. Mm-hmm. If you don't care they're not going to care either. Right. So to that point, then care is so important. We know that um, when people believe that their leaders genuinely care about them and their colleagues, that engagement increases, right? And and yes. we can correlate. So the, the common ground, those in common ground are highly engaged. Those in the battleground or the underground are either disengaged or actively disengaged, to use Gallup's terms. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So how then, where does, um, I'm curious, Frank, where does trust and fear come into play here? Like, what are the drivers? You mentioned care is one of them. A lack of care is a driver for the underground and, and battleground. What are some other sort of drivers or causes that that create the underground and battleground, you know, um, camps that people fall into? What we've seen and what I've experienced when you do failing companies is there's a polarization that starts to happen. Um, you get autocratic type managers, and this is the way it's going to be because I said this is the way it's going to be, all right? you're never going to succeed and you're going to have a constant turnover churning that's going to occur. It's going to come down to, you're going to have to create trust. For example, when I would have those one-on-one meetings with all these individuals, I would let them know, I hear what you say. Let's see if we can put that in place. Things are going to be different because if we stay on the path that you're on, your company's going to go out of business. Right. So let's give this plan a chance and that's how I would leave it and that telling them you have to but just give it a chance and then they're going to watch and now it's up to you the leader now it's up to you to do are you following through mm-hmm. so what you said you were going to do are you actually doing it are you going to fall back to the old patterns when tough times come are you really listening or not because right. there's an awful lot of, of happy talk that goes on 
when you're in, in an organization, but you, you can sense insincerity, you can smell it. And you know that this individual, I hear the words coming out of their mouth, but I know that they don't mean it and they don't care. It's something they have to say because HR said they had to say it. Right. Okay. So until the people you start building that trust factor, I'm listening to you. Okay. We're trying these new things. This is why we're trying these new things. What do you think? What input do you have? How could it be better? When you start doing that, then your organization starts to say, well, maybe this guy isn't full of baloney. Maybe this guy or woman is actually listening to us and trying to implement and has our best interest at heart. Right. Okay. Then the world starts to change. Then you see cooperation and collaboration. And then we go back to those meetings several months later and we watch again. Are people talking? Mm-hmm. Are people willing to say something that might be contrary to the overall thought process? I'll give you a real, cl- a real good example here, Nicole. We were working with a financial organization, and the CEO talked to me, and he said, uh, "You know, Frank, we our, our our diversity stinks. We're terrible. We we just we're not getting." women and minorities and that we're not just not getting, we have a lot of them in the low level, but we don't have any moving up the chain. So what, I don't know what's wrong. So I said, well, what do you think? And he says, well, I I had to give him credit. He says, Frank, when I look around my management team, all I see is all fat, bald, white guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We went to the same school, go to the same church, same parties, same, we can finish each other's sentences. And he said, at one point I thought that was good because we're all on the same page. And now I realize this is killing us. Yep. Well, I said, well, what are you hearing from your exit interviews and the young people that are leaving? And they said, well, they're leaving for a higher pay or better opportunities. And I said, okay, well, what are your management team telling you? And he said, management says, well, they're millennials and they feel empowered and they want, they're not going to wait. They don't want to wait their turn. Mm-hmm. So it's their problem, not our problem. Hmm. And I said, so how's your bottom line? And he goes, that bottom line is being impacted. That's why you're here. So we started looking into this. And one big thing, and, and you know this very well, Nicole, is we start looking at, well, who are your managers and supervisors? Let's look at them. Let's start there. Most of them were very good at what they did as an individual contributor. So now we're going to make you a manager. Look at this. We're going to promote you. Isn't this wonderful? But we're not going to train you. Yeah, you're great as a nurse. Hey, now be a leader, right? Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. You're a phenomenal. Don't be nurse. a hospital oh, administrator. That's it, right? Right. And they said, well, Frank, we send them to training. And I said, wait, no, come on, stop. The corporate training world, I was in that. You send somebody away for a week, they stick a fire hose in your mouth, they blast you with information that you forgot 90% of before you even leave the room. And then you go back with all these books and you throw them in a corner and you go back to the same old way of doing things because there's no reinforcement that's being Mm -hmm. done. So the training has to be continuously reinforced. You also have to start changing how you're interviewing and how you're looking for people. Absolutely. One of the things- It starts there, right? It starts- Absolutely. And hiring for fit. We looked at, and I said, so they give us some of their- um, uh, 
the job specifications. Well, well, here's the position that we're opening for. And I'm reading it in the code and I said, well, you have to know Excel and you have to know Microsoft Word, you have to know uh, perfect, whatever that uh, Salesforce. Mm. And I said, can't you teach these people this one here? <laughs> Isn't this something that you could train them on? And he goes, well, yeah, but it would be better if they knew it coming in. And I said, well, let's think about this. Wouldn't it be better to have people who had integrity and persistence and determination? And let's start looking at character traits as opposed to technical knowledge training because you you hire, what I was always taught was you hire character and you can train for competency. Right. And he said to me, yeah, you're right, Frank, that's motherhood and apple pie. Where am I going to find that? Okay. Well, this book wasn't out at the time, but it is now. And so one is yours and one is, is Dr. Angela Duckworth, who wrote Grit. The book yep. Grit. Great page, book. It is. Page 56 and 57. Questions that you ask to determine if the individual has grit. I took it out and I said, use these in your interview process hmm. and see what kind of a difference you make, if it makes. Once you start looking for not different, not worry, don't worry about the skill sets, worry about the individual and do they, and are they a fit, but can you define what you want your fit to be? Right. If you can't define it, it's never going to happen. Yeah. That's, that's um, another book, um, Amy Edmondson's book, which is like my Bible, um, The Fearless Organization. Um, she speaks about hiring ta- for talent versus basically character, right? You can teach and build those those skill sets, the competencies, but when it comes to the character traits required to build organizations that are free from fear and are built on trust and respect, that requires integrity and character, um, certain character traits. So let's explore that um, even more when we get back. We'll just uh, go to break for a couple of minutes and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Would you like a complimentary strategy session with Leading on Purpose host Nicole Bendeley? Nicole and her team have been making it possible for leaders to achieve exceptional results with ease for over 40 years. Nicole will help you to discover what's getting in your team's way from even better results and will share with you the simple practices that will make a big difference to your performance and theirs. Visit kand.co slash strategy and book your session with Nicole today. That's kand.co slash strategy. Leading a team today can be hard, but it doesn't have to be a struggle. With KNCO's self-paced e-course, Leading High Performance Teams, you'll gain everything you need to build the cohesion, communication, and engagement needed for your team to thrive. Right now, save 30% off the e-course. Plus, Nicole, host of Leading on Purpose, is including two coaching sessions with her at no extra charge. Use promo code VA30 when you visit kand.co slash ecourse. That's promo code VA30. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned into Leading on Purpose with Nicole Bendeley. 
Find out more about Nicole and her company, K&Co, and check out her suite of leadership tools and resources at kand.co. Now, back to Leading on Purpose. Hey there, welcome back. So before we continue the conversation, I want to encourage you all to check out Frank's website, um, frankzakari.com, and you can learn a whole lot more about Frank and the work he's doing. And we're going to touch on the tag team program in a little bit, um, a new um, program he's launched in partnership with um, Jay Abraham and Gabby Ori. And um, so we were talking about psychological safety and, and in Amy Edmondson's book, The Fearless Organization, she defines psychological safety as the belief that the work environment is safe for interpersonal risk taking, right? Which is something that you were just speaking about is that, that the ability to speak up right? Even if it's not something that other people really want to hear. And she goes on further in in her definition of psychological safety. She states that psychological safety is present when colleagues trust and respect each other and feel able, even obligated. This is my favorite part. Not just able to, but obligated to be candid, right? That it's each of our responsibilities to speak up, and to voice opinion, right? And so this sense of creating an environment of psychological safety isn't about being nice, everybody being nice and agreeing with each other. It's about speaking your mind in a respectful way through dialogue. And we've used the word dialogue, right? It's about seeking to understand others by asking questions and sharing your point of view in an open, respectful way to achieve common ground. And so where am I going with this? I'm going to the place of, so, you know, psychological safety, it's not about being nice, but it requires civility, right? The sense of civility and respect. And I'm curious, Frank, you know, Frank, you're in the States. Um, You're in San Diego right now. You go between San Diego and Arizona. I'm in Toronto. And I am obsessed with the U.S. media. (laughs) And unfortunately, you know, the state of the nation isn't all that um, civil from what is presented on TV anyway. And, And I walk away from watching the news sometimes with a sense of fear and feeling frightened and because of the great division and hurt that you can feel through the screen sometimes, right? And some of the anger that's there. And so I'm curious, how does that trickle down into organizations? In your experience, does the state of affairs um, outside of work that the collective are experiencing in society, how does that affect this ability to be to achieve common ground and feel psychologically safe at work to speak up and be yourself, whether we're talking about diversity and inclusion, you know, feeling free to be yourself, feeling free to speak your mind, you know, how, how is that? How does the external affect the internal working relationship? The external is massive, has a massive impact because not to get political here, yeah. but when somebody is, espousing division and espousing controversy and is constantly spewing on a daily basis negativity, it's Mm -hmm. going to filter into the whole organization. And then you start seeing people saying, 
well, I need to be nice. And and being nice is not the point. The point is, I need to get results. Okay, now how am I going to get results? And then you start hearing people say, don't even bother telling me about this. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. More and more, more and more of that has happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, the good leaders, the smart leaders are saying, wait, 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 we need to take a step back here. Okay, we have to, yes, it's happening. Yes, it's terrible what's going on. But in this building, in this organization, we have got to eliminate this. We have to find empathy. Mm-hmm. All right. Empathy being the key word. And somebody says, well, I feel sorry for them. Well, that's sympathy. Sympathy is not empathy. Sympathy is the person who says, hey, if you ever need anything, call me. And then they never show up. Right. Empathy is the person who says, hey, I will be here with you tomorrow. And we'll walk our way through this. There's the big difference between the two. And the outside forces have a major impact because it generates fear. It's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear of this disease. There's a fear of my job going to be here tomorrow. There's a fear is my family going to get sick. And you cannot function in an environment of fear. It paralyzes everyone. As you know better than I do, you teach this. Fear is death. Fear stops innovations. Fear stops courage. Fear stops everything. Mm -hmm. So getting out of that fear mindset is difficult when all you hear is being spewed at you is negative. So it takes an extraordinary effort to try to put that in place. And not everybody can do it. And it's, it's an enormous challenge for people to, to get involved. And we always suggest to them, if, if you're in the midst of this, before you start worrying about what the next venture is going to be, you need to fix this. You need right. to get somebody in here. You need to get Nicole in here. And let's go down and break these things down so we get to a base level component. Because if you don't have a foundation to work from, I don't care what your innovation is or your idea is or anything else. There are great ideas that fail every single day. Absolutely. We have no foundation for trust. Right. And so to your point, right, common ground is a competitive advantage. It speaks directly to Peter Drucker's famous quote of culture, eat strategy for breakfast. And I always say, and lots of people do, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner and a midnight snack. You can replicate strategy. You cannot replicate culture. Culture um, is your your competitive advantage. Right. Um, And you that idea will never get off the ground or be successful um, if you do not have the trust and respect and psychological safety needed to develop a thriving culture. And so, Frank, tell me what, you know, you've got a new book coming out. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. So tell us a little bit about what that title means and, and what are the rocks that organizations sort of need to be aware of right now? Well, the book came from 30 years of being a CEO and or a business owner. And what I've discovered is what I know and what I tell most organizations is what you know is not going to make you successful. What you don't know is going to either determine your success or failure. What you don't know is going to put you out of business. Right. What you don't, what you know is not nearly as important as who you know. 
Do you know the right people? Are you surrounding yourself with people who can bring you in the right direction? Or are you just getting your fraternity brother or your brother-in-law or somebody who's a nice person, but really doesn't know what they're doing? Okay. So when we started looking at this, and I end every one of my shows with the secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. Mm -hmm. So many organizations fail and they sink because they don't know where the rocks are. I'll give you an example. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a mentor and a judge with the University of California Entrepreneurship Academy. Okay, now these are the 10 major research universities in California. These are the best minds in the world by far. And they come up and they say, look, I got this great business. I got this idea. And they start telling me about the science and the medical. And I could say, oh, that's wonderful. Stop. I don't understand it. What I do understand is why would anybody care? So the first thing you have to look at is why is anybody going to care about what it is that I'm doing and what value, what value am I providing? Value is what you give, not what you get in return. Mm -hmm. And the landmines or the rocks are basically culture, are basically the, the way you interact internally and with your customers. The, the, the rocks are not having any, uh, bringing in the wrong people. Mm-hmm right? Or attempting to have an idea that just doesn't pass the who cares test. Right. We see that all the time. You get this great idea and it's going to change the world. No, it's not going to change the world. All right. Now, as you start down the path, particularly with, with organizations, and then they say, okay, now, gee, I didn't take into account what it was going to take to scale. Or I didn't take into account the the new tax thing that's coming into play or did, how could we possibly pre- anticipate COVID or a crisis? Right. right. So one of the things that drives me crazy, Nicole, is I said, what do you mean you couldn't anticipate a crisis? Now we didn't know what COVID was and we didn't know what it was going to be. But there was one comment. Something but was there was one coming. Yeah, exactly. And I said to people, I told you this last talk I gave, I said, I want to see a show of hands. How many have been in business since the year 2000? Right. After all, right? And I said, okay, since 2000, we have had, and list them all off, 9-11, the war, the, the financial meltdown, blah, 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 blah. We went through all that. Those are all crises. Now, crisis is either something that you is thrust on you or it's something you chose to do, like not following the advice that someone gave you. Right. That you create, that's a self-created crisis. So don't tell me you weren't prepared for the crisis. What mm-hmm. that's telling me is you're not thinking ahead. You're not driving. Strong cultures from Daniel Coyle's book said they're always anticipating something happening and, and always being prepared for something happening. So when it does occur, it's not this, oh my God, now what? It's right. okay. Shift gears. Let's go. We're prepared for this. And so that preparedness, I want to I want to explore that a little bit because when I think about being prepared, there's the tactical process side of things, right? That we go into, you know, crisis response or what have you, communication, right? All you know, all of these other things that we need to do tactically. And then there's the preparedness from a culture, from a people from a resilience, a grit perspective, from a nimbleness, being open to change, pulling up our bootstraps um, and supporting each other. So 
For those organizations that thrive, are prepared in times of crisis, describe sort of the type of culture that you notice in those organizations who are prepared. Culture, the organizations who are prepared have this culture of collaboration. They have this culture of we're going to speak freely. And they have a lot of what if conversations on a regular basis. Mm. Okay. We used to do this all the time. We'd say, okay, this is the plan. This is what we're going to go forward. What happens if? How are we going to shift? What's the worst case scenario? All right. What if, what if this marketing plan doesn't hit the targets that we were looking for immediately? How do we adjust it? Right. And you start thinking about that in advance, even before you release something or you come out with something. One of the things we, we taught at the AT&T used to do this all the time. We're going to have a new release of whatever it is. So they would they would say, okay, you're going to argue the point of the positive and you're this group, you're going to argue the negative. And I was always put on the negative. <laughs> I don't know why that always picked me to be the negative side. But you'd sit down and you'd go through this. So look at look at how good this will be and it'll change this and this and this and this. And then you look at it and say, well, what if that doesn't work? Or what if the people won't recoil on that? Or what if the, the what if we're late or competition is better? How are we going to handle somebody who lowballs us on price? What's our value proposition? And so you're constantly reviewing the what if scenarios because the world is rarely, and the business world, rarely going to go the way you expect it to right, go. Right, right. Yeah, so you start absolutely. Down the path, you've done your research, you think you have it done, and then you observe what's going on. And then if you've got your culture right, your organization from the bottom up is going to be telling you, red, red flag here, red flag. And you're going to listen and you're going to look. Exactly. Into absolutely. So Frank, just we just have a couple of minutes left. So um, tell us about the tag team program. The tag team is, is, I'm really excited about the tag team. Um, we were able to, to uh, partner with Jay Abraham, which was, was shocking to me. And Jay Abraham is awesome. <laughs> Jay Abraham, mm-hmm. right? And so Gabby Ori, a friend of mine, said, uh, we should take this idea to Jay Abraham. And I said, yeah, he's going to take a phone call from me, right? And he said, well, he and I have worked together in the past. So the idea is let's look at organizations. We're looking at green and medical innovative, disruptive people who are open and willing to be number one, to be coached and they're willing to listen. Let's see what their business plan is like. Let's see, look at their team. What have they put together so far? And then we will come in with the strategic partnerships and the relational capital. So where are the holes you have in your organization? Are you willing to bring in people who actually know what they're doing? I'm, I don't say it quite that right, right. badly. <laughs> but if you're a scientist and you're trying to be a chief operating officer, you're probably going to fall on your sword. So why don't you become the chief scientist and we will bring in the chief operating officer. Mm. We will bring in the various people. And you don't have to hire these people. You bring them in as an as-needed basis. And then they do what they do and then they move away. But if we need to call them back, we can bring them back. More importantly is relational capital because now we're going to bring in people with money who understand what it is that you're doing instead of going through pitch deck hell and trying to come up with something, giving away a chunk of your business because you want to go from A to B when you should be going from A to Z. In three months, you're out of money. You go back to pitch deck hell again and you give away more of your business. Right. So the tag team is basically, we're going to give you, it's going to be elite and it's going to be exclusive. You have to apply for it. We're only going to do three a year. 
and it's at my website, franksakari.com. First thing that pops up is the application. Fill out the application, which is basically give us your executive summary. We'll get back to you and we'll go from there. Right now we have three in the hopper. We'll see where this is going. This is fairly new. We've only been doing it about five, six months. Well, that's very exciting. That's really exciting. So check out Frank's website for more information, franksakari.com. And Frank, thank you. It was a pleasure, a real joy to have you as a guest this time on my show, which is uh, an honor for me. So thank you, Frank. And uh, to all of you, I hope you have a phenomenal week. And um, until next time, I wish you all the very best. And we'll, we'll chat again next Monday. Take good care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again for another edition of Leading on Purpose with your host, Nicole Bendeley, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a wonderful week.